History is written by... No, I'm not doing this again. Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. Ryan! This is Buddy Franklin! This is the greatest showman! Got the handball off to Myers. Myers looking for the lead of Stengel. Gee, they're good. Gee, they're sharp. Randall Dazzle Rioli. Oh, who else? McDonald. Tim From inside the centre square. time of day everyone welcome to part two of so you didn't crack the eight 2023 edition on americans watching the footy this is our 133rd episode overall the castle brothers here again benjamin and ethan in south san francisco california we are now in week one of afl finals because we're recording this australian tuesday september 5th and we just learned that the greater western sydney giants are appealing the toby bedford suspension good on them i doubt it will go well I actually had the time to watch a little AFLW over the weekend. Uh, Fox Sports 2 showed a bunch of round one, well, like six of the games and all. Yeah, they showed four Saturday and two Sunday. It was a quadruple header just back to back to back to back Saturday and really enjoyed it. Uh, The first game was probably the best of the ones that I saw on Saturday with the Suns nearly coming back to beat Carlton. I learned that James Robottom's sister, Charlie, plays just like him. There was a great stat from Swamp. I think it said five players across men's and women's AFL this year have had 20 contested possessions and 10 tackles in a game. The Robottom siblings are two of them. I realized like some of the differences between the men's and women's game. I think the women's game is really good for someone wanting to kind of learn the fundamentals of the sport because it happens at a slower pace that's easier to digest. Like if you want to actually learn about like, what do I need to do to succeed as a player? And you're, you know, it's kind of a, foreign subject to you you watch the women's game for that um other than that i didn't really watch any of those games that closely i did pay a decent amount of attention to geelong's win over the bulldogs nina morrison's really good even if she doesn't have the full mullet anymore still a nap mini legend and ashling or aisling maloney from ireland has been in australia for like six weeks and is really talented already is she further ahead than mullen is I mean, compared to the competition, I think that's definitely possible. And then I forget which player it was, but someone playing in the Geelong Bulldogs game was like a month removed from having a C-section. Whoever it was, major respect to you. Watched some of that. I have gone back and watched the Sydney Derby. Congrats to the Swans on their first win in AFL women's. Great atmosphere at North Sydney Oval. A lot of the men's team were there, which is great. Some really nice goals, too. A really nice one on the run from Chloe Malloy, which... Got Coach Donnie Hess, I think, to jump out of his seat at whatever hour it was. There was something like 2 or 3 a.m. in Iowa at that point. I want the men's and women's teams to be invested in each other. I want the game to grow. Great that we've also gotten some of it on the air here in the U.S. I I think it's going to be two or three games around from this point. But uh, we've got Watch AFL and we will make full use of it. I don't have as much time because of job commitments here to watch you know every aflw game but definitely gonna watch more of it this season and looking forward to what's ahead i'm 
would love if they could get to the point to where the season's, you know, a full round robin instead of just, what, like 10 weeks? But... Yeah, it's 10. I know the CBA's kind of long term, so hopefully they get up to a 17, 18 round season with a bye. I do like that it starts during the pre-finals bye for everything that's worth for the men's game. Yes, that is very smart. But getting into the rest of So You Didn't Crack the 8, Ethan pointed out last time that we discussed the five teams that were further down alphabetically last time, so if you haven't gone back and listened to that, especially if you're a fan of one of those teams, do so. There's a Harry Sheasel in the episode art, so you can look for it that way. But uh, we got five more teams to go here. I'm going to randomize the wheel here, and then we will get started with... Essendon. All right. So the Bombers finished 11 and 12. They were in 11th. Their percentage was below 90% because they got absolutely crapped on in their final two games. Yeah, it was a combined score of 263 to 67. That's a worse margin over two games that the West Coast Eagles hadn't won this year. Not as bad as the Eagles had in a two-game stretch, but also bad. They won four of their first five, including a Gather round. win over the Demons. Then lost four straight, then won four more before coming out of the bye, lost five of six out of the bye, barely beat North and West Coast. In fact, their two wins over North were by a combined 15 points, so their win over the Eagles was by one. It was a Kyle Langford goal at the end that had me just yelling out no at an ungodly hour. It wasn't that late, because it was a... Uh, you know what, it, it just must have been, I think it must have been around 11-something then, because that was an early game. Still, though, it, w- it was so frustrating with how well they played to give that up at the end. And then, yeah, that really should have been a sign of things to come. What we needed to expect around 23 and 24 with the beatdowns they had at the hands of Greater Western Sydney and Collingwood. Other things to note, Geelong destroyed them twice, once at the G, once at Cardinia. Humiliating enough that Essendon has to go down the highway now. It's That's so terrible. You know, it's... I think it would have been great if the game was at the G so that more people could have seen them get absolutely embarrassed. Now, I want to mention, I don't hate Essendon. In fact, of the big four, I find them easily the most likable. But I'm going to dunk on them after all the complaining their fans were doing about having to play Geelong. I just, I really want to see Collingwood have to play them. That's all I want. Richmond, it'll happen eventually. Collingwood, I don't know if it ever will. Last time Richmond made the trip down the highway. 2017? So not ancient history at all. Last time Hollywood made the trip, though. Round 15, 1999. We gotta change that, especially once the expansion is actually done and the concrete, like, actually works and stuff. Still won't happen. Hollywood would have to be a bottom three side. Repeatedly. Anyway, the problems with this Essendon team, in a lot of ways, were similar to last year, despite the coaching change. Really, the question becomes now, how much did they actually improve? Their defense had ball movers, but couldn't defend one-on-one. Yes, they were missing talls for a lot of the season, forcing Brandon Zirk Thatcher to have to go up against guys like Tom Hawkins. Basically, he had a new dad every week. Hawkins, what, was it eight in the country game? Something like that. It was humiliating, but he was the tallest guy in their typical back lines. He still had to take on those matchups, even when Nick Cox came back in. There was no clear solution there, and uh, sounds like Zerk Thatcher is keen on leaving. James Stewart was out just about the whole year injured as well. That didn't help, but the, the fact is, even if those guys were healthy, it probably wouldn't have been a great defense. Yeah, Zerk Thatcher had more dads than, uh, 
I don't know, Nelson from The Simpsons, because his mom was always bringing home different guys. <laughs> hey, that hurts. Positives, though, were mostly on offense. Uh, Zach Merritt was named to the All-Australian team. There are a couple of guys I would have named over him. We talked about this last time. Tom Liberatore is one of them. His possession numbers were insane, and he did pair up pretty well with Darcy Parrish, who is unfortunately staying. Unfortunately, from a Geelong standpoint, yeah. When Parrish was healthy, the, the tandem between him and Merritt worked really well. It allowed Merritt to go to half forward at times, and that often helped turn games in their favor. That was one thing I noticed that helped Essendon in the end. In that game, they squeaked out against the Eagles, among other games. Other positives, Nick Martin as a wing. You know, it's funny, last year he had that Rising Star nomination after a bunch of garbage time goals, but he's actually been a high-possession guy that does score now and then. Pretty solid offensive player. I like his ability to kind of, you know, play on the wing, but also move into the middle of the ground when needed. They needed to do that more often, though. There were a lot of issues in the final six rounds where they needed some more of that center bounce support, and Martin could have provided that. But if you're looking for the future with Martin playing more on the outside and the Goblin or not-dead Ben Hobbs on the inside, that isn't a bad future. We are big Ben Hobbs believers here. I think Goblin was actually a pretty good nickname for the final couple rounds of the season because they were Goblin on D's nuts. <laughs> Got <he. laughs> I think the biggest positive of this year, despite the team's inaccuracy in the final two rounds, you know, they kicked 8-19 in those last two, but biggest positive, Kyle Langford with a 51-goal season. I would think Merritt's going to be their best and fairest, but knowing how those votes work, but Langford had an awesome year. It's funny, even though he was their best forward, their issues defensively led both of us to ask, would it make more sense to slide him back to defense because he's such a big body? The 50-goal season, though, does not lie. He kicked 51-23, did play almost entirely as a forward, and that's a first for him because his previous career high was 15 goals three in 2019. If you can get somebody to solve the situation down back, well, I think even regardless, Brad Scott showed his hand there. He'll keep Langford up front. They need a key player in the defensive 50 for sure. Forward, having Peter Wright out for a good portion of the year definitely hurt, although they won a decent amount without him. So make of that what you will. I'm not, I'm not sure how to evaluate some of their forward 50 targets then. Was Wright more valuable than just kind of occupying another one of their better defenders? I don't know, because with how Langford was playing, it was less of an issue. I That's really tough for me to come up with a concrete answer on. I think that we'd probably need a full year of Peter Wright playing under Brad Scott for an answer. What I think you can interpret, though, is that forward is a position of strength. Midfield at times has been a position of strength. At times, though, their midfield just wasn't physical enough. I think, like, the first game against Geelong this year really exposed that. The second meeting, that wasn't their issue. The second meeting, it was just a billion turnovers. That That is one thing. If you want to come up with, like, a regular issue to find in their midfield, the Zach Merritts, Darcy Parishes, it's that they turn the ball over a lot. And, you know, if those happen mid-contest, it's not the worst thing. But when there's some of the uncontested ones that lead to counterattacks the other way, that's where things really fall apart. But if you were to rank their position groups in order of strength, it goes forward and midfield and then a huge drop off and then the defenders. Some days you could argue that their midfield is even more of a strength than their forwards. And I think I, I know, you know, trading current players for each other isn't that common. But if you're looking to, you know, deal from a position of strength to one that's 
that's a weakness, they have the resources to do it. It's not unheard of, although it's somewhat rare. I can think of a couple times that it happened last year, like the Omira and Meek stuff with Hawthorne and Frio. Oftentimes in defense, Essendon were trying to build out with short kicks and go uncontested. When Forrest came up to pressure them, cut off those shorter angles, it really hurt Essendon, especially when they had some taller matchups that they could take advantage of as well. I can think of a team like the Brisbane Lions with their front half game really taking it to them. Funny is that Brisbane actually kind of struggled against them. Matchup-wise, you'd think that's, you know, you'd think Brisbane would just roll them. Especially with how they were playing in the final third or so of the season, that would be the case. That was a somewhat early meeting, though, right? think so. I think it was kind of like mid-season-ish. I remember Brisbane also having accuracy issues in that game, if I'm not mixing it up with another. It was round nine. The Lions kicked 12-15-87 to Essendon 6-9-45. Nice. You know who wasn't kicking it accurately in that game? Joe Danaher. He kicked 6-1. Yeah, that was kind of fitting. You knew he would do it to him eventually. You knew Joe had to do it to him. But the question is, with as Benjamin alluded to already, you know, what did this team do to show differences under a new coach? Other than Kyle Langford now kicking a lot of goals, and I guess, you know, Hobbs and Martin's development, you know, structurally, it's not like there was anything that noticeable. And the uncontested play in the back half could be picked apart even more easily than West Coast at times, even when Adam Simpson and the Eagles had been doing that for longer. So we'll really need to go back and, and compare really these last two years to next year then. And the trades are going to determine a decent amount of that. If they do end up swinging the deal for Ben McKay, how much will they give up there? They are one of the players for him, along with Sydney and Hawthorne and Port. Hard to believe that Ben McKay is the one who's getting all of this attention, but there's no real other huge defender in there. Huge in terms of stature or status within the game. Remember last year, Essendon were linked to a billion guys and hardly got any of them. I feel like they're going to have better luck with that this year. Also, they were a mess of an organization that and now they actually have a clearer leadership structure, although they still have the same list manager that they've had for over a quarter century, which is kind of crazy. How do you have the same list manager since, I think, 1997 when you haven't won a final in, well, the streak will go to 20 years now? I, I don't get that at all. I, I think the uh, the seatbelt thing in round 24 was a sign. Strap in for another quarter century of Dodoro. That uh, seatbelt game, that thrashing by Collingwood also signaled the end of the careers of Andrew Phillips. And we're obviously sadder about the latter one. Phillips showed well at times this year, but was getting older. And with Sam Drake, we're going to be playing more steadily after. I mean, he had that long-term hip injury that we didn't realize was going to be that long-term. It was kind of Clayton Oliver-esque there with a very unclear timeline. Draper and Nick Bryan seem to be the future of the ruck for Essendon, so Phillips could have gotten squeezed out anyway. And for everything we love about Walla, he struggled a lot in this last year, so it'll give some more opportunities there for younger midfielders. And some younger small forwards should get opportunities. You know, Alwyn Davy Jr. showed flashes, but clearly on the younger side, and just needs to build up his game a bit more. He's going to be a fun one in the next few years, though. I, I look forward to what he has to offer. I also hope that Massimo D'Ambrosio can get steadier time. He was the sub a lot, and he was one of their better players. I don't understand why he wasn't in there more. Yeah, he was the one that swung forward and had the winning goal against North in that first meeting. Oh, by the way, they also won Dreamtime. That was one of my big things for them. They had to finally beat Richmond, and they did. That part was a success. They sent Dima out of Richmond. I think that was more on 
Richmond failing to get the right guys on the oval when it came down to it, then Sam Durham taking that mark because somehow Dylan Grimes was not on the field. Our sleepers for this team. Mine was Alistair Lord. He didn't get a game, and I believe he's being delisted. Believe so, yeah. Just checking his VFL stats real quick. Was a steady player for them throughout the year, but tended to average kind of in the teens for touches. Maybe he'll get a lifeline somewhere else. Maybe with that name he could catch on with Geelong because, of course, there's 1962 Ramo medalist Alistair Lord, who I don't think there's a family connection. I think there's a connection between him and Ollie Lord for Port. My pick for the season, someone I really thought who was going to have a breakout year and now is further down the pecking order in terms of forwards with Langford's massive year is Harry Jones. He unfortunately had a back injury that caused him to be put on the inactive list. He played five games, kicking two goals for, and was subbed off twice. One of the biggest individual disappointments for them this season. Obviously can't be faulted for the injury he suffered, just wish we could have seen more out of him. And now I think his future is kind of uncertain. Between teams one and two, Grind Harambe has entered the room. He's on Ethan's bed and is vigorously cleaning himself. And speaking of Grian, it's Geelong time, so that's very, very fitting there. All right, the Cats went 10-12-1. They had the seventh best percentage at 112.6, but finished in 12th. They didn't find their footing early on, going on two three-game losing streaks, sandwiched by a five-game heater. They had a lot of key injuries all year that really showed against their top opponents. And they also didn't clean up on the road. In their out-of-state road games, they picked up two of a possible 20 points, those two coming from when the Sydney Swans really let him off the hook. And we let him off the hook! That was such a funny game. It was like, who wants to win? Well, not really. It just felt like we had no business winning and played our absolute worst and still came away with two points. And it's kind of insane out of that that the Swans somehow still are playing finals. They kicked 6-18 that night. Now, we kicked 7-12. We were not great. The Swans also didn't use their sub, which was kind of bizarre given that it was Ryan Clark, a real tagging type. But we can go on and talk about the Swans when finals actually comes around. Geelong also lost very gettable games at home. They lost three games at Cardinia Park this year. The Bulldogs round 24 makes sense given the Bulldogs. That was a fun loss. Yeah, I know. Just not an experienced group and the Bulldogs. It was a half VFL side and there were good individual pieces there. Yeah, they led a three-quarter time. But Frio and GWS, you look back on those. And, like, the GWS one aged better, but the Frio one was embarrassing, especially with how poorly the Dockers had been playing. Entering that game, just a ridiculously flat performance. It was one of those days where Jake Kolajashny was terrible, which was just about every day this year. It was more common post-buy for sure, and it was really noticeable in the final four or five rounds. That was also, uh, both teams against Frio, Tom Stewart kind of struggled, which was weird. Anyway, if the Cats lose three games at home, they don't make finals. The last time that it happened was 2015. That said, they also caught some teams at the wrong time. The game at Frio, the game at Port Adelaide, you know, facing teams in the middle of hot streets. You can't be mad about that Port Adelaide Thursday night loss. That was just a really strong Port team. And it was kind of funny also that Quinton Nargle had two goals as a late and on debut. It would have been nice to play... A you know, not get absolutely run over in that third quarter, but Port was the better team. And you can't be mad when Sam Palpepper does cool things because Sam Palpepper. The really frustrating thing was that this midfield couldn't keep up. There would be quarters where they would just get shredded. There would be a shutout quarter. 
I think in the final five rounds, the Eagles won more quarters than them. Just a bunch of frustrating stretches that were not fun to watch. There were no, like, heartbreaking losses or thrilling last-second wins. There were a couple of inspiring wins. The fourth quarter against the Ds, the win over the Bulldogs at Marvel. But the losses more fit in the frustrating category where, like, there was, you know, a lengthy goalless stretch, maybe a fall quarter, giving up two or three goals in very rapid succession, giving up goals to guys who shouldn't be kicking a bunch of them. Like, in the in the loss to Frio, I believe it was Josh Corbett. GWS, you thought it was Jake Riccardi, and then Riccardi just continued to improve from there. Yeah, so that one wasn't as bad. I mean, it was like, that's that again is a loss that aged better. And also the Giants tend to have Jalon's number down the highway for some reason. Yeah, if, if that's going to be like your one random home loss each year, could live with it. I mean, I'd like to beat them. I'd like to not have any team that has your number, but I could live with that if I had to. There were selection issues throughout the season, and a lot of it centered around the young players being held out for too long. Mitch Nevitt was one that could have really been used when the midfield was lacking. Uh, Ollie Dempsey, who looked really good in that round 24 game. Ollie Dempsey actually, I thought, was better than Nevitt in that game. You know, Nevitt ended up getting subbed out. I think that was just to get Ted Close in for his debut. I don't have much of an evaluation on him because I haven't seen enough of him. I know Chaps Chat Cats, they love him. Yeah, they, they watch more of the twos than we do. So I, I think that's where part of that comes from. And then Toby Conway, he was injured for part of the year. As soon as he was even 80%, he was a vast improvement over John Segler, who has retired. Yeah, John Segler was not AFL worthy at any point this season. And as hard as it was to play without a Ruckman, and as much as that got exposed, like against Rowan Marshall, I would have rather had no Ruckman in there than Segler, or better case, just play Toby Conway. I know Flynn Kroger's working his way up the ranks as well, but Phoenix Foster. But Conway, in his AFL debut, you know, I had seen footage of him that looked good. He played well against Matt Flynn in a VFL game against the Giants. But in his AFL debut, he pretty much neutralized Tim English to the point where Luke Beveridge actually changed something mid-game, and he switched around English and Rory Lobb, and Lobb gave him some trouble, but Conway looks good. I think he looks better than Stanley, and you know, I would hope Stanley's content with being in a more reduced role as he's 32. He'll be 33 by the start of next season. If he's your number two rock option, that would be great. I also wouldn't mind if you could find a way to play both of them because, you know, he played some of that final game at half forward and half back and was actually just really good by foot. And I wouldn't mind seeing more of that. I wonder if that was partially kind of covering a Mark Blitzov's like role as well. Blitzovs was probably the most important to the injuries this year, even more so than Cameron, Hawkins, Rowan. Oh, yeah. Now, Rowan, when he was out, there was an obvious, obvious hole, just the spark that he provides in the forward group, even as you have other guys that can do that, like Brad Close and Tyson Stengel. There's something that he brings in the forward 50, Rowan does, that's just a little different. So even as Rowan ages, I think you got to have a spot for him. But if you were arguing about most valuable players on this team. You know, I'll make my case for Brian Myers. We'll talk about him in a minute. You can talk about Tom Stewart, Jeremy Cameron, Jeremy Cameron for Todd Hawkins, but Mark Blitzovs in terms of midfielders and matching up with the opponent's best player and just what he offers athletically. And also better goal kicking this year as well. Kicked 12-7. I don't think, yeah, he matched his career high there. So just a very complete year when he was in, but once he went down at round 20, the writing was on the wall. He's someone whose performance greatly exceeds the numbers you see in terms of, like, fantasy stats and stuff. Just, again, the athletic ability that 
he can go out there and neutralize an opponent's best player regardless of position, that he's just an all-around athlete with tremendous stamina. He's special, and I know Luke Jackson is the unicorn, but I think Blitzovs is kind of a unicorn in his own right. Negatives, again, Jade Kolajashny, uh, a lot of guys playing through injuries, something that the longer offseason will help with. But major positives, Brian Myers sets the home and away record with 41 assists. Would have had a few more if not for some shots hitting posts that he didn't even make the All-Australian 44-man squad is an absolute joke. And a couple years ago, I thought Zach Guthrie was nothing. He has been a really quietly consistent player. You know, before last season, he had bulked up some, and I think the team kind of learned how to put him in a better role, and his instincts have gotten so much better. He is a really smart player who sees the game really well. Now, the big question for the offseason is, what do you do in the midfield? You know, it sounds like they probably don't have enough to get Bailey Smith. And he's also got one more year on his contract. If he wants to move now, though, doesn't seem likely. You think about what's your midfield going to look like next year. You expect a healthy Cam Guthrie. Remember, he only played like four games, five games. It was pretty bad before getting hurt. He was just starting to turn a corner when he suffered that injury that ended up keeping him out much longer than expected. I think he would have played round 24 if there had been anything on the line there, but why bother rushing him out there when you're not playing for anything? Uh, Mitch Duncan is showing signs of age, and I think his instincts and vision aren't what they were, which seems weird. Those seem like things that shouldn't go away with age. You know, maybe some of the speed does, but you would think instincts wouldn't wear off, but there are going to need to be upgrades. But I think there are some interesting questions to be asked. You know, can Tanner Broom take that next step because he's still relatively new to the position? What can you do, again, with the combination of Stanley and Conway? Can you throw Brad close in the middle more, which I'm always an advocate for, because he's really fast, and every time he touches the ball, something good happens. But if you're looking externally, two names that I think could really help this team that I would have never said anything positive about before probably, I don't know, mid-July, Taron Thomas and Liam Henry. Now, Thomas I always liked as a player, but obviously had the off-field issues, and if he really is able to move past that, and I know coming to Geelong, you know, there's a good network of support there. I think he could do some really impressive things no matter what position you put him at, and then Henry is kind of more of a halfback, but he could do some midfield work because he's quick, he's good with the ball, he's just, he's not a forward, and I think they realize that at Frio, and now we want straight back to Victoria. Yeah, they, they've realized his use on the outside, really, in the back two-thirds, and I, I was surprised at how much our opinions of him improved in the back half of the season alone. It was really all post buy, So there's clearly some more development that could still be had from there. You can have him as someone that, that can kind of work alongside or off of Tom Stewart in the back, have some support there. So if you have the interceptors and, and have him be kind of one of the next guys in the chain, that could really work because he's also good below his knees, good in terms of handballing and crumbing. So he could be a useful piece and he's only 22. I just don't really know what to think of this this group yet with them being in this transition. It's it's kind of like what we talked about with Richmond, but Geelong aren't as far along yet in transitioning to the younger side of the list. Clearly Hawkins, Cameron, Duncan, Dangerfield have a couple years left in them still. Duncan maybe only one. Zach Tui, I'm kind of surprised that he's going around again, but the opportunities are there for the younger side of the list and I hope Chris Scott and company aren't hesitant to insert them because it backfired what they didn't this year. The pessimistic approach is this midfield cannot cut it, and there are a lot of really good clubs out there where you're going to need to make some major changes. 
The optimistic approach is that having a long offseason will let this team get healthy. Finishing 12th will give you a more forgiving schedule. And you're just a couple of midfield reinforcements away from not only returning to finals, but being a top four team, because it seems like there's always a team that goes from missing finals to the top four. And I think they're the most obvious candidate for that by far. I do think, you know, you get a couple of these dudes healthy. You get ideally a full year out of Jeremy Cameron, out of a Tyson Stengel, get Cam Guthrie healthy and back into form. I think there's a lot that can be done. And I think in the big picture, we're going to look back between what they do in the draft and just having this long offseason to get guys healthy, we're going to look at missing finals as something that ends up really benefiting this club. As much as I hate it, I think long-term it's going to be good. Thinking about some of the younger players we haven't mentioned yet, Jai Clark got a debut, but then had a stress fracture in his foot, so that's another one that could be a big midfield player. Oshin Mullen was one of the more interesting ones because of how inexperienced he was coming over from Ireland. My impression is that he's going to be tremendously successful. The talent and speed is unbelievable, but he's going to need some more time just to understand the game more. You know, there were just like instinctual things that weren't there, like not realizing that a guy was chasing him down from behind. You were saying that really 2025, you you label as the year of Oshin. You went over that, I believe, in the round 24 recap. Yeah, 2025, you can pencil him into the lineup every game he's healthy. Next year is going to be more of a development year, I think. I think you'll see him a few times. I don't think you're going to see him all 23 games. Uh, also going to need a bounce back year from Sam DeConing, who I really think was never right after the facial injury that had him wearing the Batman mask. He did not look comfortable playing with it. And then after that, I don't know if it was just his confidence was zapped or what it was. A couple of things I found weird was Zach Tui not playing in the final game of the year. I thought he was going to get a send off. So I guess it as of now, and his plans to be here for another year? Oh, I mean, Chris Scott has already said that Tui and Hawkins are playing on. You would expect Hawkins to play every game he's healthy unless you're in a position where you can manage him. I don't think he can say the same about Tui. I think, you know, as his production declines, he's someone that you know, maybe plays in half your games. I loved that when he broke the record with his 265th game, he was in along with the two other Irishmen, Mark O'Connor and Upsheen Mullen. That was really special. And Chris Scott just taking the piss and and having all of them named at the center line as well. Just like, nah, I'm doing this for Zach. It was a weird year for Mark O'Connor, who's going to be 27 by the time next season opens. Less of a tagging role, but capable elsewhere on the ground. As we saw, played him as a midfielder and halfback kind of in between there. I was hoping to see some more tagging from him this year, though. Yeah, especially like why wasn't he tagging Caleb Sarong in that home loss to Frio. That was really bad. Mitch Nevitt was, was your sleeper, kind of, alongside Asava Radigolea. Haven't talked about him yet, and he's out the door with whatever contract he's going to get elsewhere, whether yeah. it's whether it's Hawthorne or is Essendon in the mix, I, maybe? I, Port definitely is. Right, the, right, Port. Um, but The it, thing with Asava, I think he's got the ability to be really solid. I think you saw him evolve over the course of the season in that he didn't give away a billion free kicks like he did early on. Oh, he definitely improved his discipline, and he's always been a good mark. It's a matter of just kind of getting front position, managing those one-on-one matchups. And I think Hawthorne would actually be a really good fit for him because he doesn't have to be that main defender there. He's got James Sicily and Blake Hardwick on whom he could rely, kind of like how Tom Stewart and 
at his best, Sam DeConan could take some of the most important matchups. Paying five million over seven years for him is way too much, though. If if someone else is offering him that, nice knowing you. He's going to have to improve his ball skills, but if you're with Hawthorne, then it's just you know handball to James Cecily and let him do his thing. Or Hartwick, yeah. Or if you're if you're with Port, how about Dan Houston or Kane Farrell? Yeah, that's all Australian Dan Houston and goal of the year finalist Dan Houston. I'm against set shots being included just because I I think of goal of the year differently. I I know the Creed. The Port duo are having a discussion with me about that. Um, you know what? Let's just mention it now. Goal of the Year nominees. Uh, yeah, before we before we take a break, let's do that. Let's just wrap up the Geelong stuff quickly. Yeah, that makes more sense. Um, my couple of D-listings. Yeah, three of them we know. Sam Simpson is a disappointing one considering he came back this year with a two-roll performance, got in a few times, never was consistently in, though. Kind of a puzzling case. Oscar Riccardi, that one surprised me. I wonder if they try to re-add him for rookie stuff. I think that's possible. And then the other one was my sleeper pick for the year, actually, Cooper White. So I guess I swung and missed there. It was after seeing him in the preseason, uh, kind of the practice match, where I was just kind of thinking about him as, okay, this is kind of an unknown, but I saw him being prominent at times in that game. He was the sub in round one and was not cited again. So Simpson, he had two goals in that Blasting of the Swans in round six. Another two goals against Essendon in round seven. Another two against the Crows round eight. But then only one against Richmond and then had six disposals before getting subbed off against Frio. Was used against the sub a couple weeks later and that was it. I hope some team in need of forwards could give him consistent playing time. And I hope he can stay healthy because he has talent and he's only 24. That's another one that maybe you try to throw back in through rookie stuff, but I think he would probably be in enough demand that he probably gets a chance elsewhere. And if he does, I hope it goes well for him. So, yeah, before we go to break, uh, let's go over the Mark and Goal of the Year finalists, shall we? Yeah, let's let's do it. Mark of the Year. Harry Himmelberg from round one. The huge grab over Riley O'Brien. Went on his shoulders forever for that one. Then you had Harry Himmelberg in the Gather round. round five, the mark that led to his game-winning goal. Just Harry Himmelberg took over the last two minutes of that game. Y- you obsessed in our recap, Himmelberg having that mark, kicking the goal, and then racing back to touch through for the behind, a tenth of a mile apart. And then the other one was Ash Johnson from Car Call in round 10, where he was going up against Mark Pitnett. I think Johnson will win the vote. And I think it's because the Himmelberg marks will cancel each other out. I see. I'm conflicted because the first Himmelberg one, the hang time was great, but it was over the shoulder instead of, you know, like fully straddling him. The second one was more of a full straddle, but he didn't get up as long. And then the Johnson one wasn't really over one guy in particular. You know, it was in the middle of the crowd. Mason kind of ducked, which makes it a bit less impressive. It kind of made it hard for him to land, which made it look cooler, but... You see, this is why I think, you know, the division on the Himmelberg ones is something that can hurt him. I think the round one mark was individually the most impressive play. If you're including the context of the game, that it would be the one at Norwood. But if you're also talking about context, then I guess Dan Houston has a real case for goal of the year. Also realizing that he took the Norwood one over James Sicily, of all people, I think makes it even better. I'm going to be content with any of these winning. I'd like to see Himmelberg win it. You know what? The more I watch the Gather round. one, I think that's the one I'm going to roll with. But the round one hanger was pretty sweet, too. That was like 
a great, oh yeah, footies back moment. There was there was also, I think, Shea Bolton or someone took a big hanger in the season opener. Wasn't as good as his one against Geelong last year, but uh, I think that was two years ago. Wait, was that 2021 or 22? No, I think this year Bolton took a good one of the season opener. Someone did in the first, like, 10 minutes of the season opener and what was otherwise a really crappy game. The, no, the, the Bolton mark of the year was 2021 round eight over Blitzops, though. Thank you. Yeah, that that was that fantastic. He's going to win marker goal of the year again at some point in his career, right? Yeah, but I'm going to go with Himmelberg from the... Gather round. As for goal of the year, you had the Will Ashcroft goal with the tap and then the kind of ninja kick out of midair along the boundary. The Jackie Chan inside of the boot. That was against Frio round seven. And that came just a week after Charlie Cameron's uh, little tap in Canberra when he was in the air. Yeah, I don't know how that one didn't make it. I don't know how the Brody Mayashek bicycle scorpion, however you want to describe it. Bicycle to scorpion is like what Rene Iguita did. But yeah, the, the bicycle with uh, Nick Blakey trying to bring him down. Paul Curtis round 10. Love that that's a nominee. He had another good one late in the year. Was it one of the ones against the Eagles? I, I think so. I mean, I feel like it was probably from that four-goal quarter. But yeah, he got out of tackles from Robbie Fox and Nick Blakey before kicking one from pretty close to the boundary. That's not what that game's going to be remembered for, though. No, it's going to be the number 76. It, it was a pretty sweet goal. I'm just, I'm surprised it was in the top three, because again, I thought there was a clear top three of... Ashcroft, Cameron, and Mayacek, so you can kind of infer from that which one of these I think should win. I'd be shocked if Ashcroft doesn't win it. And then the other nominee... I think he'll place top two. I think it will either be Ashcroft or Houston winning. Because of the intercept mark, and then having to kick it from 55-plus in wet conditions, and it also be the after-the-siren winner, that's the biggest... It's not even in the conversation if it's not an after-the-siren winner. Exactly. Um, You know... Now, I don't think it should win goal of the year, but it should win goal judge of the year for the umpire managing to get himself into the middle of everything to see it. Like normally, goal umpire of the year would just be David Roden because he's awesome. But this the guy who did this, whose name I'm blanking on, I don't know his name either. And maybe it's a good thing that we don't know that he was better than the goal umpire again in the Adelaide Sydney game. No, it, it's like, you know. If you don't know a referee or umpire's name, it's because they're doing their job, right? One of the Essendon defenders even kind of kind of leapt over him. But yeah, the, the winner's Ashcroft. Or Houston. No, it's the best one's Ashcroft, and we all know it. If you're isolating the play that he had to make, yes. For a set shot to be in there, it's got to be like Jeremy Cameron's barrel against Pork last year, Jake Strager's barrel on the run this year against the Giants, Jeremy Cameron and Ash Johnson going back and forth in the qualifying final last year. Didn't Mitch Duncan have a barrel as well? Was that against the Eagles in that dead rubber? I think so. But but no, you know what? I'm warming up to the, to the idea of Houston at least being in the top three because of... I'm not... And that's not a knock on Houston. It's just there are some other really, really good ones. Again, Majacek and Charlie Cameron. And there are probably a couple others that we're forgetting too. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday.
Don't forget, we are collectively on Twitter at AmericansBuddy. Brian Harambe is on Instagram at CatNameBrian. He has been sleeping and twitching and is might be awake right now. I don't know. Uh, I'm on Twitter at BenjaminHK01. I- I'm just fascinated by Ethan's cat. I'm on Twitter at Castle Media, if that's important at all. I mean, you've got your Bay Prep stuff that you're doing just with... Yeah, Battle Report an episode of that podcast, too. High school sports are fascinating. And there's been like some interesting kind of political things going on. Other high schools adopting like very stringent media policies. It's it can be kind of a mess, but it's usually a beautiful mess. Got a couple of things to throw in before we continue. First off, Ash Johnson has a hairline fracture in his arm and is going to miss at least the first couple weeks of finals. Yeah, we I believe that had happened during uh, the VFL wild card round, maybe, or or maybe it happened in the Williamstown game. Also, Bailey Williams is getting a four-year extension with the Bulldogs. Apparently, his nickname is also Truck. So maybe one day he'll be a head coach and have a team openly courting his replacement while he's still employed. It has to be Alistair Clarkson, right? It doesn't have to be. Uh, the Crows are extending Matt Crouch, who I know some Victorian clubs have been interested in, so that takes another one out of the puzzle. Yeah, we know the Gold Coast Suns are also keeping Sam Flanders around. Makes sense considering how well he did at AFL level and how many touches he got once Stephen King backed him in. I would love for Stephen King to stay at the club under Damian Hardwick. Obviously, his staff is still taking shape. The Matt Crouch extension is two years, by the way. So through 2025. Also, we had talked about goal umpire stuff, and in one of the AFLW games over the weekend, I guess they don't have, do they not have score review systems? I would think they do, because this was at Cardinia Park. Well, they didn't use it, and Georgie Pressbackis thought she had a goal. I thought it was a behind initially, and so did the goal umpire, and they never reviewed it. Luckily, it didn't matter. Will only matter, I guess, if percentage comes into play at the end of the year. But it, but... Yeah, she thought she had a goal. Goal umpire didn't. Should have been a goal. It's clear that the technology needs to change, and I expect the AFL to do absolutely nothing about it, even when systems like Hawkeye are available to help with that. Even if, like, you could do something with putting a chip in the ball to help figure out deviation. That said, you know, we've talked about wanting to create equal opportunities for the men's and women's game, and having goal umpires watching call, you know, brings the women's game on par with the men's game. All right, back to So You Didn't Crack the Eight. Three teams to go. As I spin the wheel again, it's Frio time. Y'all, keep my rival's name out your fucking mouth. It's free wine time. So Frio was a team that we were super high on after last year. We were high on them going into last year, and then they were largely bad this year. Finished the year strong and were really good winning four in a row from rounds eight through 11. But after the bye, they couldn't keep that up at all. They finished 10 and 13, 14th place, a 96.7 percentage. After being a team that really liked to push the pace, handballing through the corridor, had their forwards apply a ton of pressure. They played really slowly at the start of the year and reverted to that a few times and it never really worked. The first thing I thought was, is this a coaching overreaction, thinking about, no, they figured us out. We got to change things up. I think the other thing was, considering they lost a couple of their most important pieces, David Mundy retired. They let Blake Akers go for a third round pick. He's playing finals. I can laugh at you for this, Dockers. 
They also gave up their first round pick for this year by bringing in Luke Jackson. And right now that stands at pick five. That said, even though there were times when Jackson seemed like an awkward fit this year, I think that's going to work out long term. And I'm I'm not worried about that. I'm, I'm not worried about it either. He really turned it on starting with that win streak and the cheeky game he had against the Sydney Swans in Sydney, I believe. Also, while they definitely struggled when Sean Darcy got hurt, he had a damn good year, but it would have been nice to have Lloyd Meek to back him up. That said, I'd rather have Jager O'Meara with the way he played. The midfield was pretty good. What was weird is as good as Will Brody was last year, he ended up playing most of the year with Peel Thunder down on the twos. I wonder if maybe we overestimated him as well, but thinking about the rest of the midfield, O'Meara, it really took him playing against his old side as well to wake him up. The first matchup they had against Hawthorne really did that job. And then Caleb Sarong, deserving All-Australian. He had the most disposals in the league this year in the home and away. Andrew Brayshaw was second. I thought Brayshaw had a bit of a regression from last year, which was kind of inevitable. But the two of them worked together well. And, and Sarong just looks like the leader that I expected him to be, even though he may not be part of the leadership group. When it comes to the actual leadership, I thought Alex Pierce was kind of an awkward choice as captain. I was thinking they were going to completely go with the younger side right away. And I also thought that at the start of the year, his play may have suggested this could be a bit much for him to have his defensive responsibilities and the captaincy. Both Pierce and Brennan Cox backslid in defense this year, and that definitely cost them. I will say Pierce did have a really good game round 20 against a clearly injured Jeremy Cameron, but there were a couple of good games. Just he's going to need to do more of that. Heath Chapman was injured after round three, and we didn't see any more of him this year. That might have also really hurt their defense and Benjamin's ability to think about him in the tub. You're really still going with that. Yeah, if you don't know the reference, you got to go all the way back to our round one recap from last year. This podcast was maybe a toddler at that point, but if you're thinking about smaller one-on-one -on -one defenders, Chapman was one of their stronger ones. Jordan Clark had to take some more one-on-one -on -one responsibility, and that didn't work out as well. He's much more of a mover out of defense than a true defender, and so I think that really disrupted their structure in general. So a healthy Chapman would go a long way toward their defense improving next year. A uh, more positive side, good year out of Lockie Schultz, or Schultz as some say. He had the goal of the year nominee for around 24. He did win that. Uh, Michael Walters, despite continuing to age. I mean, everyone continues to age, but he's he's older than a lot of their guys. Uh, he was really solid, reliable set shot, fun in open play as well. Giannis kicked 41 goals to only 17 behinds in his first full season. He's going to be a good one for a long time. I mean, that that's a kind of a Jeremy Cameron line almost, going back to age 19 campaigns. He turned 20 near the end of the season, but that's one of the biggest positives to look forward to. You got these sharpshooters for both the Western sides that could be really fun going through the next decade between Amos and Allen. I wouldn't be shocked if you see the two of them battling it out for a Coleman at some point. Also, considering that he's from Western Australia, they should probably like their chances of keeping him around. He's from Bustleton, which is about 140 miles south of Perth, so way down in the southwest quarter. Yeah, like going down toward Bunbury, that area, then where they were thinking about maybe making a bid for a 20th AFL team, it should be Canberra. Thinking elsewhere in the forward two-thirds, you saw Hayden Young play a lot further upfield, or downfield rather, in the back third of the year, establish himself as a tagger, and we'll see more of that, I think. 
especially if Chapman's healthy, then the defensive structure will be more established and there will be freedom for Young to do that job because he did pretty well with it. I also am looking forward to more of Neil Erasmus, who was the sub a number of times and was unlucky not to get a Rising Star nomination this year with the consistency he had. But out of these past two rounds, the one player by whom I'm most excited for Frio is Tom Emmett. Emmett debuted round 23 against Port, had two goals in each of those games. In round 23, he came in because Walters was out with a calf injury, kind of took his role, aggressive going for the ball in the forward 50, earned himself a few free kicks, and then had some really good deliveries toward Walters and their forward targets round 24 as well, in addition to getting a couple goals for himself also. It's funny, I actually, the way we split up games, the round 20 game was really the last game of theirs that I really watched in full. Yeah, the Western Derby round 22 and then round 24, the early window, you were covering high school football. But yeah, Emmett, 21-year-old South Australian, has battled cancer and a really severe Achilles injury to get to this point, was a mature age draftee last year. And I think they found themselves a good one. Biggest question for Frio moving forward is, what's your identity? Because I loved the identity that they had really established for themselves last year. And they kind of went back to it also at some of their better moments this year. I think they learned, and I want to back in Justin Baumier to do the right thing next year. It's going to be tough for them to get back to finals so quickly just with how many other teams are in the mix. But I, I trust them to at least be in the hunt. They were buried pretty early this past year. I would say they were pretty much done by the, what, the round 19 loss to the Swans, maybe sooner than that. But yeah, it's a question of identity. And and with the guys we mentioned, including Erasmus, who was your sleeper pick and proved himself pretty well, they lead younger this year. I think another summer for them to mature and grow as a group will be a good thing for them. I think they're going to be in a really good position going ahead just because of their youth, even if you can't like lock them in as a surefire finalist next year, which after 2022, I would have thought, oh, this could be a top four team in the next few years, whereas they've set themselves back, obviously. Some of that, though, wasn't by their own choice with Akers and Rory Lobb also wanting out. I also they just, could have gotten more for Akers. And I love also that Lobb just made their entire list forget how to play footy in round six. Yeah, that that was a one-off thing. The other time against the Dogs, they just... They just lost to a better team. Do you think Rory was still drinking lobster tears after that second win, too? I hope so. There was so much pettiness around that. That was fun. That's like the good sort of drama that we need more of. My sleeper pick, by the way, I think I did pretty well with mine. It was Ethan Hughes. I said at the start of the year, even though he's on the older side, even though he's 28 going into the year, with Blake Akers being out, He's going to need to be more prominent on the wing and going from halfback. And he did do that in his 20 games this year. Had a couple rare goals to show for it as well. And I just think is another part of that best 22 to 28 players. Or I'm not sure if he'll get steady games next year as they continue to lean younger. But it's a good piece to still have around. I think they've shown where some of their depth is. And that should serve them well. This team has the talent to do some pretty impressive stuff. And I think it's just a matter of combining that with their identity to get it right. And also just having a bit more luck with some of their injuries between Chapman and a couple others. Sean Darcy obviously missing the end of the year when Bailey Banfield was getting back into form and were big on Banfield. He also got hurt near the end of the year. Banfield's one that I I always think of as, please put him in the 18 and he proves himself when he does. 
When you look at the best teams, though, they have a hard time fitting guys into their 22 and 23. And that could be the case for Frio. It's the case of finding the right mix as you're also finding the right identity. We only have two more of these two. So, I mean, while we're spinning the wheel, technically, I guess we're, we could kind of just uh, flip a coin. And these teams doubled up this year with the home side winning both of those meetings. Uh, this is going to be frustrating. Adelaide Crows should be in finals, should be in that Sydney Swan spot. Look, here's the thing. And I'll, I'll just knock this out of the way right away. Even with the umpiring fuck up against the Swans, had so many other things that they could have done themselves to get into finals, where they had a bunch of games where they had a dominant quarter, but kicked it accurately and it came back to cost them. Oh, don't worry. I've got receipts. But when you have the fifth best percentage of the league, when you score the most points in the home and away season, they outscored the Brisbane Lions by 13 points and they didn't even crack 500. They went 11 and 12. They finished in 10th. 116.8 is their percentage, by the way. Out of their 12 losses, I count seven as heartbreaking. Let's just run those down. Round one at GWS, they kicked 4 9 in the first quarter. They led by five at three quarter time, lost by 16 with their score reading 12 goals, 18. You know what? I'm actually going to say it's eight because even though they hardly ever held the lead against Richmond round two, the game where Patrick Parnell got bashed by Nathan Broad. They kicked five goals, eight in the third. And yeah, they lost that by 32, but they had a chance to really make that competitive. But getting back on schedule here, I, I just want to mention, you make it sound like you were the one who caught that when it was me who brought it to your attention. So I'm just, I'm just going to take credit for that, by the way. Yeah, just things we took out for time. But yeah, thank you, Ethan. Round seven against Collingwood, they led by 22 early in the fourth, despite kicking 3-6 in the first quarter. They kicked 7-16 for the game and lost by one. I still think Steel side bottoms behind was intentional, and you're not going to be able to convince me otherwise. I don't care if it was, honestly. If so, honestly, great move. You don't allow him to reset. You make him go the full length of the oval. Round 15 at Collingwood, they kicked one goal five in the first. They still led by 13 to three-quarter time and lost by two. They kicked 11 goals, 15 there. I think it's kind of, in a funny way, karma after, you know, rubbing the Collingwood stuff into port. But they did beat twice. Yeah, they won both showdowns. Convincingly, the end for both of them. I know that Adelaide fans sang good old Collingwood forever or near the end of the first one. Did they sing it for the second one? I, I don't think so, but they should have. But that second one was a much more thorough win, by the way. They just kind of were routinely better every quarter. The rematch against the Giants round 18... They led by 17 at three-quarter time and didn't score another goal. They lost by 14. The next round against the Demons at the G, their rare trip to the G. They kicked three goals, nine for the first half. They were tied early in the fourth and lost by four, kicking 13-15. That was also really difficult to stomach because that was where Isaac Rankin did his hamstring after putting on a really good kick, like right before as well. That was when he pulled it. Then rounds 22 and 23. Against the Lions, they were inaccurate in the second and fourth quarters. Nearly came back from a 16-point deficit, but lost by six, kicking 13-15. And then the Sydney game. They were down by 44 late in the second, 42 at three-quarter time. They kicked 4-8 in the fourth and lost by one on that incorrectly called behind. So really, it should have been 5-7. 
regardless, I'm going by what the score is. And, and still remember, look, we've said it before, maybe the Swans come back down and score, not impossible, but unlike- unacceptable the way that was handled. But in those seven games, they combined to kick 74 goals, 101 behinds. When you have the forward talent you do, that's just all the more surprising. Taylor Walker with a career year resulting in a long-awaited first All-Australian team. 76 goals to play second to the Coleman. Yes, 19 of those were against the Eagles. Still impressive as hell. And he was still also putting on some good deliveries to guys like Darcy Fogarty or the smaller targets like Isaac Reichen. In the time he had, we also really enjoyed Luke Pedlar. Big body going through the middle and a capable and a capable kick for goal as well. He kicked 25-15 in his 21 games. Thinking about uh, Rankin, though, I thought that he and Josh Rochelle looked better when they played together. Rochelle had such an interesting year. He started really hot, then struggled, ended up getting dropped a couple of times, and got a dumb suspension late in the year. Seems like someone who, you know, he still needs to get his impulses and energy under control. But the talent is there. He's just, he's got to be more consistently solid because there are games when you wonder, like, why is he even in the lineup? Or where is he? Defensively, it was really interesting because they suffered multiple injuries that you thought would have destroyed them because this wasn't supposed to be a particularly good defensive team in the first place. And then they ended up improving on that and withstanding some serious injuries. Serious, yeah. How about two ACLs? Yeah, that'll probably carry over into into next year in Tom Dude and Nick Murray, but Josh Worrell, Mitch Hinge, and Mark Keane stepped up. Keane, I remember, struggled in, what was it, the, was it the Sydney game or the second meeting with the Eagles? He was going with Oscar Allen at times in that last round game, but started off with a really solid showdown against Charlie Dixon that got a lot of praise and deservedly so. If you can enter next year with him as like your number five defender, that's a good place to be. And you've also got James Borlace working into things with his huge shoulders. The ser- seriously, the guy's built like a linebacker. We already did a whole bit about that. And on the smaller side of defense, I mean, Hinge isn't super big. Worked his way into being a better interceptor. Another guy who we questioned some of his impulses at times with the chaos he can bring. But Max Michelani ended up being one of the best first-year players in the league. More capable one-on-one than I expected with his size. Pretty good field kick more than anything. Skinnier guy. If he goes and does what Zach Guthrie did a couple years ago and just puts on like a shit ton of muscle, he can be really scary. Like he's good as is, but could be even more if he makes a few physical changes. When I went into this year thinking about the Crows, I thought this will be the year that determines Matthew Nix's future. And I think it's appropriate to back him in with what they've done. They're still on the younger side. They'll grow into a team that can close out games. And it's feasible that even if they dip a bit in performance in a lot of ways next year, even if they dip in percent, that they could see the eight. That's my prediction that I already gave. See, here's the funny thing about them. Usually when a team loses a bunch of close games, you're critical of coaching. But how can you blame coaching other than maybe someone who's working with the forwards on hitting set shots? That's that's really it. They just gotta gotta kick goals. That's not something that you could put on the coaches. but yeah, I my prediction for next year is they do better in close games. They probably have a couple more games where they just get beaten up. And the end result is a lower percentage. Maybe not by much. Maybe in like the, I don't know, 108 to 112 range. But I think they have much better luck in close games. And they end up playing finals. 
I would love to see another showdown final. It's only happened once. From what I can really tell, you know, those are the two fan bases that really hate each other the most outside of Victoria, and maybe even more than you could even say with like Collingwood and Carlton or Essendon and Hawthorne. Yeah, but I I love this. I love a great rivalry like this. I love that we had some close games with it recently. I want them to both be good at the same time. It's fun when you have a huge rivalry like this where I don't have like a side that I prefer or a side that I really hate. Like, for example, college football. I'm not necessarily an Ohio State fan, but I really don't like Michigan. So that kind of forces my hand there. So it's it's like it, it's a lot of fun just to be able to take this in and, you know, just like go out there and kill each other. Get back here and kill each other. First year I watched 2020. Started liking Port with some of their playmakers. Learned to appreciate the young crop for the Crows. I have a hard time deciding between them. Well, maybe less so now if Port decide to keep their doctor around. Riley O'Brien would have done a better job checking Lockie Jones and Alira Lear for concussions. It's really funny, by the way, that what Riley O'Brien, who plays like just a big oaf, honestly, like a skilled one, but not like a super refined cerebral guy, is actually like one of the smartest people in the sport. And I think O'Brien's in a really interesting spot going into next year because you got a number of talls that you'll need to factor into things. You've got O'Brien there, Lachlan Gallant, who showed well as a forward and ruck, and then you've got one of our favorite youngsters of the league, Riley Philthorpe, who had a couple monstrous games this year. That first showdown in round three, I believe it was, he kicked five. Was it the fourth one that he humiliated Lockie Jones? It, it was one of the later ones, and it had one of my favorite moments of the year. And when they do the round three, like, little montage leading into, you know, the Brownlow votes, that specific clip, the, you did that, needs to be in there. I don't know if it will be, but it should be. But, yeah, between O'Brien, Gallant, Phil Thorpe, still trying to throw Walker into the rocket times forward. If Darcy Fogarty remains a consistent set shot, there's... A whole bunch of things to consider when you put the talls in this lineup. You can't go overwhelmingly tall, so there are going to be some tough decisions made there. I think they'll back in Phil Thorpe as a high draft pick and someone just with a very visibly high ceiling, but it may take another couple years for him to get consistent time just because Tex is there and complicates matters. Sleeper picks for the Crows. I actually went with Hinge because I just didn't think he was one of their most prominent defenders until this year and was kind of forced into that role late. Learned a lot about his chaos. I think you went in terms of sleepers though, Ethan. Yeah, I went with Chase Jones, who ended up becoming a pretty regular player all year long. Yeah, before he had a somewhat severe foot injury that ended his season a couple rounds early. Jones played 18 games, came in as the sub for Showdown, and kept his spot in the 22 from there before getting subbed off with that injury round 21 against the Suns. Kicked seven goals, five on the year. A pretty versatile, mostly outside player. Thought of him as playing more on the ground in the past. We saw more of his marking ability this year. That's another one who I could expect to improve even further and make the Crows better for it. All right, one more to go. No spinning required, not even doing the sound effect. Uh, Actually, we need another sound effect in here. A combination of two, I should say. The Mighty Sun. The Gold Coast Suns offseason kind of started early with the hiring of Damian Hardwick. They ended up in 15th, going 9-14 at 91.7%. They were never in the 8 at the end of a round, but they felt close to breaking through a number of times. 
My question is, were we too caught up in their Darwin double, which they accomplished again to focus on really the underlying issues all year for them? The difference is, instead of playing North and Hawthorne there, they played the Crows and Dogs. Yeah, there was reason to believe, I think. Thinking about what we knew about the Suns going into the year, we weren't concerned about their forward two-thirds. We expected Matt Rowell and Noah Anderson to continue toward their peaks, and they certainly did that this year. Anderson ended up being the more complete player just because of how much of an inside beast and a tackler Raul was again. I think he broke the home and away record for tackles. Admittedly, the extra game helped with that. If I'm not mistaken, Anderson won their uh, club best and fairest, right? I think so. Was he in the Australian squad? Yes, Anderson was the only son to be in the All-Australian squad. Makes sense, honestly. Matt Rowell, now that we actually got the experience, like a full healthy season, it was kind of, you know what you're going to get. He's going to tackle a bunch. He's going to be good in contests. He's going to eat some grass. I mean, that wasn't something we knew before this year, but that was that was a fun little mini story arc. That was that was entertaining. So now we know two interesting things about Rowell. He eats grass and he owns 52 Sharons. And then the forward targets, Ben King coming back into the fold. Inconsistent at times, but they were able to mitigate that with some of the other strong performers there. Levi Casbolt could still take on anybody in the contest and just humiliate people with how big and physical he is. Wanted to see more out of Bobby Orchol didn't happen, which surprised me because I think he was he their leading goal kicker last year. He was up there and then they just kind of stopped using him. Now, I will say this. I think Ben King coming back in was, was the big thing there. When we saw Chol play later in the season, we saw both the good and bad. We saw a couple of bad plays in terms of just surprisingly low effort, but we also saw some good, especially in terms of that he could play not just as a full forward, but going out on the wing. And I think their best 22 probably does include both him and Ben King. Maybe that changes as Bailey Humphrey continues to evolve. He had some flashes. He was a monster in those two Darwin games and then had some nights where he was really quiet. But you can see the upside with him. He's another one of those younger players. We're just waiting for him to establish more consistency. And then he can't talk about their four two-thirds without mentioning Tuke Miller. And it wasn't just because of the uh, the squirrel grab he had on Dane Zorko that cost him a game. When he was in, he was a game changer, as we expected. His tag of locking Neal in that second Q clash where the Suns finally broke that rivalry drought was masterful. A full season out of him, and I will back him in to be a Brownlow medalist like I did at the start of this year. Even with Noah Anderson taking some votes, I think Tuke can do it. And I am looking forward to Damian Hardwick figuring out how to structure the team around those weapons. Because that's what he did at Richmond with Dusty, and I think he'll do it again with the Suns. It's a tougher challenge, but I, I think he's up for it. And he's got some pieces to play with, obviously. You've also got Brody McLaughlin, who tied for the VFL goal lead this year. He kicked 51 goals, 25. He and Chris Burgess tied for the most. The defense was the real question going into this year. We knew about Sam Collins. We didn't know much about Charlie Ballard. And until the final few rounds, he was one of the biggest positives, consistently so. Here's my thing, defensively. You know, they had some stretches, they had some good individual pieces, and then towards the end of the year, it really regressed. And I think there were some guys that should have had games that didn't end up getting them. The one in particular that I felt very strongly about, as I've said before, was Caleb Graham. You think about last year, the defense looked more sound in general with Graham in there. 
because you had some of the size with him that he didn't have with Ballard and Collins. Ballard often had high intercept numbers, never got to 11 intercept marks to get the solo record because, again, Gill would murder him. But if you have a strong, taller piece playing in back of those two more established pieces there already, then I think the back six could look pretty good for the Suns. I don't think Mac Andrew was able to be that guy because he doesn't have the bulk, but he's clearly improved at his pure defensive craft. He still has some improving to do in terms of actual, you know, ball movement. There were times, especially earlier in the year for him, where he was such an uncertain and like unsteady kick that he would just look to handball it to anyone near him rather than actually kick it himself. And he seemed to improve on that and develop a little more confidence as the year went on, but there's still a ways to go there. I like him, and he should be in every single week. Thinking about the VFL squad, especially that there were minor premiers, they won their Q Clash qualifying final by 43 points. Caleb Graham has been one of their steadier defenders there. And then Sandy Brock, one of their Darwin Academy products, 198 centimeters, so that's around 6'6", is emerging as a key defender. So maybe he's part of the solution there as well. As I said, with Damian Hardwick coming in, some changes will happen, but... Dimas says he's got 80% of the premiership team on the roster already, so I think his approach will be more maximizing the weapons that they already have. I think that number's probably a little lower than 80. I think it's more around 70-ish of a flag team. Yeah, at, at most, I think even that's a probably a bit of a generous estimate, but look, you want to talk up the list that you already have, and there were some pieces that we learned about late in the year as well with some of the AFL time that Stephen King gave him, in particular... 30-plus touch machine Sam Sexy Flanders, who has been rewarded with an extension. If that was one of the more simple fixes they made that paid off. I don't think the changes need to be super radical. I still find it surprising that Stuart Dew was sacked when he was, and it came after losses to the top two. It, it was just the timing of it that was so weird. It was like a little too late to really do something with this season. Not enough time to give... You know, an in-house option like Stephen King, a real full audition, but... I think the story's going to come out in the next however many years that they already had Hardwick lined up for it by then. I think so. That seems very likely. Maybe Mark Evans had to fly to Italy to close the deal, but it was already in the works, and they wanted to clear house sooner rather than later. Yeah, and look, if they had something cooked up with Hardwick before they even made the announcement. Good on them for keeping things quiet and not openly courting someone like Essen did last year. Still kind of shady. Eh, if that's what happened, I like how they did it, because there was nothing done publicly. We had some fun with the uh, Essen and sacking. No, he's not sacked stuff last year. The Suns were definitely cleaner about the way they did this, and I, I really do wonder if Stephen King's going to stick around. I hope he does. Other players we like that we haven't mentioned yet, there were a couple more Darwin Academy guys along with Brock who have who have actually gotten AFL time already. Well, not actually. I mean, Mal Rosas is becoming a known commodity and is one of the more accurate disposers of the ball on this Suns list. I like it. I think, and I've said this before, I'll mention it again, that's a guy who could be both a 30-goal and 30-assist guy. And then there's also Joel Jeffrey, who put on a show last year in Darwin for his family. Ended up switching more to halfback this year, which was not a role I expected from him, especially with some of the taller defenders they already had in the works. But maybe it was a way to get more immediate time in AFL games before he got hurt. I thought that you were going to have Ben King more as a running half forward 
and longer set shot kick, whereas it was Jack Lacocious that took those longer set shots instead. And, and really, he swapped forward, whereas Jeffrey was sent to the back. With Casbolt being on the older side, I thought, okay, Jeffrey will have more opportunities there, but clearly not the case. I think, you know, in terms of AFL-level players that we've learned the most about this year, that, you know, were more established at that level already, I think Lacocious is one of them, yeah? Yeah, it was funny, because the first couple of weeks, he looked so bad, and then he had that five-goal game against Geelong, and I think as the year went on, he ended up really impressing me. Someone who can kick a big bag, take a lot of marks. The thing is, he needs to be better in the games when he's not at his best, because he had a lot of games where he would just do nothing. And you need to be able to be better in your in-between games. Is that part of why you ended up calling him Vinda? Yes, because just like Indian food, and we've said this before with Ryan Tika Masala Gardner, the good Jack Lukosius is really good, and the bad Jack Lukosius is really bad. Hence, Vinda Lukosius. Uh, I've talked about this before, but I'm going to mention it one more time. If you had to rank everyone in the AFL, you know, who would I least want to go into a marking contest with? The number one answer is Levi Taswold. He's the most likely person to injure you. Like, not not intentionally, just he's a very large person and a very strong one. By the way, Ballard was my sleeper pick for this year. So I think that was one of the strongest sleeper picks out of any of these non-finalist teams. Yours, Ethan, was former cat Charlie Constable, a big fantasy pick early in the year, and did he even play past round two? I don't remember him getting a game at all. I had him on my fantasy team early on, I think. Yeah, he got rounds one and two, may have been an emergency round 24, he did not get in again. So yeah, that was uh, as much of a flash in the pan. It was a trendy pick. I can't have been the only one who would have picked him given the proposition. No, but, uh, but yeah, yours yours was good. Just they're going to need the Ballard from the midsection of the season, not the Ballard from the last two rounds. And also they need him to not be like another Ballard from a very different sport and injure one of his team's most important players. I don't know why I just remember this, Ethan, but uh, back when Keith Ballard, a hockey defenseman, was playing for the Florida Panthers, he was so frustrated at them giving up a goal to the Atlanta Thrashers, a team that no longer exists. Well, they relocated to Winnipeg. That's it! Back to Winnipeg! He smashed his stick against the post, only in the process he caught his goaltender, Tomas Vokun, in the back of the head. I just found this. That's that's really bad. Yeah, he concussed him there. Yeah, so don't, don't do that. Be midseason Charlie Ballard, not however many years ago Keith Ballard. At least... 12 because of when yeah this was a uh, 2009 november 2009 yeah oh yeah he just like straight up hit him it wasn't like you know a piece of the broken stick came back and got him he just hit him. we shouldn't be laughing again i think you can laugh about it like 14 years after the fact especially when vokun went on to continue yeah he ended up having a fine career so it's not like this was i'm surprised you didn't remember this that's up there it's like some of the more ridiculous things I've ever seen. <laughs> That's really bad. And with that, we end So You Didn't Crack the 8 for 2023. These won't be the last postmortems we do, because we'll be doing them for finalists that bow out in the previews for the next week. So the way these uh, finals episodes are going to work, preview and recap like the world, but also before we do the real previews for the semis, prelims, and grand final, We'll be having the postmortems for those other teams in the previews as well. So 
Something to still listen to even if your team goes out the previous week. It'll it'll also be really nice just to not have so many games and to really be able to do shorter episodes that are also a little more in deck. So I look forward to that. Just remember, we're on both Twitter and YouTube at Americans Footy. I am on Twitter individually at BenjaminHK01. I am on Twitter at Castle Media. Brian Harambe is on Instagram at CatNameBrian. He is not twitching now. He's just out. It's all ogre now.